Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk to you about the Animal Kingdom. And though I intended this podcast to actually go out before Earth Day so we could actually celebrate Earth Day, I missed the date. There were just too many other things going on and so much news happening in the Disney world space that I thought I needed to move it out a little bit. So a belated happy Earth Day to you. And actually, shouldn't every day be Earth Day? So the story is that back in 1998, Disney opened the Animal Kingdom theme park and they opened it on Earth Day 1998. Now, if we go back in history and we think about the history of animals at Disneyland, Walt Disney was an animal lover. Walt Disney was a naturist. He enjoyed understanding how animals lived and worked and interacted. And he had started this True Life Adventures at some point. And True Life Adventures was a film crew going out into the wild and studying out all of these different animals and filming them and bringing back something so that on the wonderful world of Disney, he could show what these animals did and what they worked like and how they interacted with each other and in the wild. And it was kind of cool. And this was a popular theme. There was another program that was on at around the same time. It was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And it had a similar sort of bent to it. They would go out and they would explore different wild animals. Which one was better? I don't know. It's a matter of taste, I guess. But the interesting thing was in a maybe 15-minute vignette, you got a sense of what these animals were like in the wild. The world was different. You didn't have that ability to see these animals. Many of them weren't in zoos. And if they were in zoos, they were in cages, so you saw the animals, but not how they lived. So it was neat to be able to see animals and kind of how they interact. Now, some of the animals were more interesting than others. There's a fabulous story, very famous, about how Disney sent some one film crew out to film lemmings. And lemmings were these little creatures that look a little bit like gophers. And the film crew was out there and they were out there for, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of hours, maybe it was a day, maybe it was a couple of days. It was some period of time. And, and these lemmings were doing literally nothing. <laughs> they were just laying around, they would eat, they would sleep, they would go into the holes, they were doing nothing. They weren't interesting. They didn't make a good subject matter for a film. So one director got the bright idea to kind of go up behind them and scare them a little bit. And so he kind of ran up behind them and they all started running. And surprisingly, they all kept running and some of them went right over a cliff and down into, I believe it was an ocean below, I'm not positive about that. But anyway, they were scaring them into jumping. It was the fight or flight inside the lemmings and they went and they jumped the cliff because they felt like they were being hunted by this human. Disney turned that story around and called it the mystery of the lemmings. Now, whether Walt Disney himself knew the true nature of the director chasing it, I suspect he did, or whether this was just a nice little story that he was able to tell because it looked good and compelling for TV, I really don't know. But the story was that Disney told that lemmings, for some unknown reason, will jump off a cliff. Wow. 
And that became the de facto story that lemmings follow each other and jump off a cliff. And that's all because some director on the Walt Disney True Life Adventures chased lemmings until they jumped off a cliff. And people still believe it today, even though we know the truth. You know, if you see any lemmings, you, don't, you know that they don't jump off of cliffs. And yet people still kind of believe that sometimes, which I can't get over. It became part of our popular culture and our myth, this collective knowledge that we have, this myth that we carry around sometimes, that somehow these creatures will just jump off a cliff for no, no apparent reason, because Walt Disney showed us that and said that they did. It's weird how that works. Anyway, Walt Disney really wanted to have a live animal action encounter somewhere at his Disneyland. And when he was thinking of the Jungle Cruise, he thought, this is a great place to do it. I could put live animals here and it could be really cool. The problem with live animals is they're unpredictable, you can't really have them around each other if they're out of their habitats, and they need to be well-fed, otherwise they will eat each other or attack guests. So really not the right idea to have them there. The second problem is, most of the time, animals are kind of boring. You're going to ride by if you go on the Kilimanjaro safaris, for example, uh, in today's environment and you go out there, there are some times that you see nothing. And other times you see some animals, and other times animals are, you know, just kind of laying there. They're not doing something. They're not engaging all the time. So you can't tell a story on the Jungle Cruise with live animals where you're going to say, oh, look, there's a lion or there's an elephant, because you don't know if the elephant's going to be there or be doing something else. You can't force it to be there all the time. So once he realized that, that it was an impossibility, he moved on to making it audio animatronics. They would always be doing the same motions repeatedly. And you didn't have to worry about, I think the quote was from the uh, Jurassic Park movie where the Jeff Goldblum character was saying something about you don't have to worry about animals on the Jungle Cruise eating people, unlike the dinosaur park. So anyway, uh, the idea was that Walt Disney wanted to have live animals, but it didn't come to pass. And Disney, the Disney company thought about this long and hard. Could we create something? Could we do something? Could we create a conservation effort? Could we do something that really lets wild animals roam free and we could let guests interact with them? And that was on the plate for a long period of time. Until the late 1980s when they started thinking about expansion in Florida. And what else could they do? And this, this idea of a nature park, of something that's a zoo but not a zoo, could come together and they could actually have live animal encounters. And, you know, it seemed like it was a good idea. So by the early 1990s, they started building out the idea for it and started trying to procure animals to put into the park. Now, unfortunately, at some point, some of the early animals that they brought over, whether it was because of the climate change or whether it was because of some uh, weird effect of you know, how they were handled or whatever, some animals died when they first moved to the animal kingdom. And that was kind of sad and it made a lot of national news, but that's the way things happen sometimes. It's just unfortunate that it worked out like that. But Disney pressed on and decided to create this animal kingdom park where they would have different places for animals. They'd have grazing areas where they could have African animals, they could have some animals that were from Asia, and they could also have some other animals that were from other places. It was kind of a cool idea, and they could actually bring them together and have them in the theme park, and people could interact with them in some way. It was just really neat the way they thought this through and what they thought of. It's like, this is very cool. Now, Disney being Disney, decided that wasn't enough. The animal encounter could be part of it, but if you're gonna make a theme park, why not make it compelling and have three different areas one for the live animals, one for animals that used to exist, that is dinosaurs, and then one for mythical creatures, animals that never existed. So you'd have the three different areas and they'd all be part of this central theme of animals and animal encounters. Now, of course, we know that the dinosaurs 
were actually put into the Animal Kingdom Park. You had the whole boneyard area and you had the uh, Dinorama. Now it looks like a roadside sort of place maybe in New Mexico. And I think they really captured that as something that they could do that was kind of neat. Now, is it really compelling? Is it as complete as it could be? Did they really tell a story? Probably not. They did have Sue, the largest and most complete T-Rex, being prepared for display at the Animal Kingdom theme park when it first opened, so it felt like they were going to do something in the dinosaur space, but it never happened. In the mythical creature space, they never went anywhere. In the land that's now Pandora, they had planned to put a whole mythical creatures section, but it just never happened. It was supposed to be dragons and creatures from Fantasia and other things, right? These characters that would come together and they would all be in this section but it just never happened. So you really only had the live animals in a small section for the dinosaurs. But the live animals, they still had this idea to put them there and have them roaming freely, mostly, and then have the, you go out into the savannah so you can see them. Now, of course, as I've told you in the past, they wrote a story to make the savannah journey more interesting, a little more compelling than just riding around aimlessly to see animals because you never know what you're gonna see, but they did do that. They also created a place called Rafiki's Planet Watch which was really a conservation station where they talked about how to do better, to do more, to be more interactive with your environment, to help animals in some way. And this was really cool. What a great idea to talk about conservation and conservation of animals. And when they started building the idea for the animal kingdom, that was a central theme. How can we make this better? How can we make the world a better place? So when they got to opening day, they invited a lot of people who were big on the conservation sense of animals. Jane Goodall is an example. She had worked with the gorillas and learned how to communicate with them. So she was there on hand and she was there for the opening day special and she was there for the dedication ceremony and she was engaged when they were bringing animals over into the theme park. Others like her were there as well, conservation giants, luminaries, people who really wanted to help. And so it was a really neat thing when they did this on opening day and they put on a big show. Michael Eisner was big on shows. And so they first had Roy Walt's nephew to get up and speak about the animal kingdom. Thank you, thank you. The Walt Disney Company owes a lot to animals. Back in the 1930s, when other studios spoke figuratively about their stables of stars, we meant it literally. Our featured players back then were two mice, two ducks, and two dogs. Yes, Goofy is a dog. But with all due respect to Mickey and the gang, the fact is that these were animals only in the most anthropomorphic sense of the word. After all, I don't know a lot of mice that drive cars, go fishing, and have a dog for a pet. Then came Snow White, which offered a realistic, if rather cuddly, depiction of forest animals. A few years later, we released the landmark film Bambi. Our artists spent years studying the natural behavior of animals in order to get a sense of, sense of authenticity for our four-legged cast members in their settings. Most important, I believe, is that 52 years before The Lion King, Bambi was all about the circle of life. To be sure, our forest animals may have been somewhat atypical in as much as they spoke perfect English, but they dealt with real issues of life and death, survival, and renewal. In 1948, Disney released its first true life adventure film, Seal Island. This time we were showing real animals in real habitats. 
The True Life Adventure series is of particular significance to me personally since I participated as a writer, director, editor, and producer in various combinations on over 40 of them. Many have become genuine classics, such as Beaver Valley, Bear Country, The Living Desert, The Vanishing Prairie. Eight of them won Academy Awards. These films prove that animals don't have to be cute to be compelling, that dramas don't have to be scripted to be stirring. Our main job in creating the True Life Adventures was to bring plenty of film and keep the cameras rolling. And so the real seeds for Disney's Animal Kingdom were planted. As part of our company's circle of life in 1994, The Lion King was released, and it harkened directly back to Bambi in its subject matter and its spirit. Like Bambi, it took place completely in the world of animals. And like Bambi, the success of the film demonstrated how strongly we homo sapiens are drawn to stories about our fellow animal. But just as this theme park has its roots in our films, it also represents a major departure. Once a movie is completed, it's done forever. On the other hand, Disney's animal kingdom, like the animal world itself, will evolve and grow. It's truly a living thing, something we are consciously and proudly calling Disney's. You're about to see Disney's Animal Kingdom for yourself, but first, I want to call forth the people who really made it possible, the designers from Walt Disney Imagineering. They're the ones who transformed a pasture into a kingdom. And then, Michael Eisner got up and spoke about the Animal Kingdom as well. Thank you. Good morning. When Walt Disney first dreamed up what was to become Disneyland, he was imagining something unprecedented, a completely new form of entertainment where he could tell three-dimensional stories. Six Disney theme parks have opened, including the Magic Kingdom, Epcot Center, Disney MGM Studios here in Florida, each an original entertainment concept. When we started conjuring up a fourth theme park at Walt Disney World, we knew we had to come up with something that set itself apart, something that was novel and distinct. We considered a number of ideas, but the theme that kept topping the list was the world of animals. The more we explored the idea, the more we became aware that nature is perhaps the greatest storyteller of all. From the smallest ant to the biggest bull elephant, the true life adventures of animals are fascinating and ever-changing. Indeed, that is the one aspect that sets the animal kingdom apart. Here, an unpredictability will take center stage. On the Kilimanjaro Safari, our animal cast members do not follow a script. Every trip will be a different adventure. Every journey will bring a different story. The day has finally arrived to dedicate Disney's Animal Kingdom, an epic that has been literally making and taking millions of years to accomplish. For the last three of those millions of years, we have been guided by the wisdom of the Animal Kingdom's esteemed board of advisors. These are some of the world's leading naturalists, environmentalists, and zoologists, and I would now like to recognize them 
and ask them to stand individually and ask you to hold the applause until I've introduced the group. Karen Allen, author and president of the Communications Office, Inc. Dr. P.D. Borsma, professor of the Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Washington and president of the Society for Conservation Biology. Dr. William Burnham, President and CEO of the Peregrine Fund. Roger Karras, President of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Linda Chapin, Orange County Chairman and Founder of the Orange County Land Acquisition Program. Dr. William Conway, President and General Director of the Wildlife Conservation Society. Dr. Mitchell Hutchins, excuse me, Michael, the helicopter got in my way, <laughs> can plan almost everything, but not everything. Director of Conservation and Science for the American Zoo and Aquarium Association. John Lucas, President of the International Rhino Foundation and Director of the White Oak Conservation Center. Dr. Terry Maple, President and CEO of Zoo Atlanta, an affiliate scientist for the Yerkes Primate Center at Emory University. Ray Mendez, explorer, photographer, and principal designer of Work as Play, Inc. Dr. Russell Miedermeyer, president of Conservation International and member of the World Conservation Union Species Survival Commission. I would also like to introduce one other person who has served as an important advisor on this project since she first visited Walt Disney Imagineering to make suggestions on the park's design. Ladies and gentlemen, famed environmentalist, naturalist, and pioneering researcher on gorillas, Dr. Jane Goodall. As is the Disney tradition, we have posted a dedication plaque at the entrance and a few words that captures our ambition in creating the park. It reads, Welcome to the kingdom of animals, real, ancient, and imagined. A kingdom ruled by lions, dinosaurs, and dragons. A kingdom of balance harmony, and survival. A kingdom we enter to share in the wonder, gaze at the beauty, thrill at the drama, and learn. Disney's Animal Kingdom is almost ready, but the fact is it needs two more elements in order to come fully to life. Our human cast members, and of course our guests. It is now my pleasure to introduce you to the people without whom we cannot make our magic happen, our cast members. And I thought this really captured sort of the essence of what the animal kingdom is, maybe was, but I think to a large degree still is, and you really got a sense of how it came together. 
composer, arranger, Grammy Award winner, and voice of the Lion King, Label M. And so we celebrate the animals and we celebrate the animal kingdom. And on this Earth Day, like I said, every day is Earth Day, right? We really should celebrate the animals and think about all the things that are out there and how we can do better in the world. And to that end, my One Little Spark segment is about just that. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart (laughs) of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. Keeping up with the theme of a belated Earth Day, I wanted to continue to talk about Earth Day because every day should be Earth Day. There was an article that came out in April of 2020, and it was published in the online version of the Museum of the City of New York. It's called A Future Worth Living, Reflecting on the First Earth Day 50 Years Later. April 22, 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in New York City and nationwide. Right now, when people who were able to practice social distancing are mostly staying inside, it can be strange to think of 100,000 New Yorkers marching and picnicking on Fifth Avenue to celebrate the environment. Yet in a moment that when questions about the role of government, mobilizing communities, and the future of our planet have come to the fore, it is well worth returning to the first Earth Day. Earth Day was a collaboration between the government and citizens. Proposed in 1969 by Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, Earth Day events were organized nationally by a handful of young activists and local volunteers. New York Mayor John V. Lindsay, who had created the nation's first Municipal Environmental Protection Administration in New York in 1968, closed Fifth Avenue to cars and delivered an impassioned speech. Some viewed the festivities as bad for business or a distraction from other issues, yet ultimately, Support for Earth Day exceeded expectations and helped grow the environmental movement. By the end of 1970, the Nixon administration had established the Environmental Protection Agency and passed the Clean Air Act. Earth Day united various constituencies and agenda, from elementary school anti-litter campaigns and college campus teach-ins, to mothers who sought cleaner air, protesters against pesticides, and proponents of population control under the banner of a future worth living. Because the first Earth Day fell on a school day, whole classes of students planted flowers, swept public spaces, recycled, and protested pollution. The day also engaged New York's cultural producers. Prominent ad man Julian Caning came up with the name Earth Day because it rhymed with birthday, while artists and designers such as Robert Rauschenberg and Milton Glaser created memorable graphics. 
Environmental justice gained momentum in New York over the following decades. Activists increasingly emphasized environmental racism or how toxins and lack of green space in poorer neighborhoods disproportionately affected communities of color. In the early 1970s, groups such as the Young Lords decried high levels of lead paint and tuberculosis in their communities. While by the late 1980s, groups such as El Puente and We Act formed to oppose environmental hazards like sewage plants and other pollutants that contributed to health disparities, including high rates of asthma. More recently, Hurricane Sandy in 2012 spurred many New Yorkers to confront climate change. In September 2014, over 300,000 people joined the People's Climate March in Manhattan. And in September 2019, the climate strike in New York involved tens of thousands of people and garnered international attention. Many observers have invoked the threat of climate change and pollution during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some have pointing to falling pollution levels in cities as certain industries are on hold and transportation is slowed. Others emphasize that those who already suffer disproportionately from air pollution, low-income communities of color, who are more likely to be working in healthcare, food, and other essential industries, are at a greater risk from COVID-19. Both have suggested that this pandemic is a practice for addressing climate change, forcing whole cities and nations to make drastic changes and to think about how to help the most marginalized and vulnerable. Speaking during the first Earth Day in 1970, Mayor Lindsay noted that, quote, the business of pollution is the twin brother of the business of poverty and despair, end quote. As we face the challenges of these uncertain times, we can look to the environmental justice advocates who have long argued that people on the planet are inextricably intertwined and the health of one rests on the health of the other. I would say that's worth considering. As we think about what happened during the pandemic and we think about all the things that changed, you have to consider the fact that we really need to bring together all of this discussion about climate change, activism, how some, some people, particularly people of color, are disproportionately affected by a lot of these things. And I just find the whole thing really intriguing. Now, as far as Earth Day goes, one of the other things I wanted to mention was a few things that you can do in your own life to have a positive impact on our, on our Mother Earth, on our environment. The first is to conserve water. I think that one, it goes kind of as a self-explanatory thing where you don't use as much water. Do more things where you can recycle water, capture rainwater, turn the water off while you're brushing your teeth, fix any leaky faucets. And, you know, honestly, we should stop drinking bottled water. That's one of the worst things for the environment just because of the way we're taking the water out and we're using these plastic bottles. Use a reusable bottle instead. Find a better way than just throw, constantly throwing away bottles. Number two, be car conscious. If you can drive less, then you should. And then I would also suggest that if you can switch to electric or at least a hybrid, all the better. Anything you can do to reduce our consumption of fuels and reduce our carbon footprint, those are all good things. So if you can reduce a little bit or maybe take the train or the bus, if you live in a city where those are available to you, then that would be a great thing to do at least once in a while to help reduce your carbon footprint, if you will. A third one is to walk, bike, or take public transit. Sometimes this goes hand in hand with the uh, being car conscious. You want to try and do what you can to be a little more efficient with how you use your environment. I got to tell you, I get up every day and I go for a bike ride and it is awesome. Yeah, I see a lot of the same scenery over and over again, but you know what? It's just so nice to get up, get a little exercise and feel like I'm doing some good for myself and my environment because I'm not driving the same way.
It's kind of nice, actually. There's the three R's that everyone talks about, reduce, reuse, and recycle. So reduce your consumption of things, reuse where possible, and recycle if it makes sense. Look, I know the recycling programs are sometimes a bit of a sham, but I think it's important to try and take it on and do what you can to try and recycle and do some the smart things. And think about the future. What could we do to do away with some of these products that we use, some of these plastic bottles and so forth? Is there something else we could use instead of the plastic bottles as a more compostable material? Speaking of compostable material, why not give composting a try? There are many ways to start composting. I actually got myself one of these tumblers that goes outside and I just compost all of my scraps. Any vegetable material I have, I just put in the composter. And it's really, really great. I wind up with some really great compost and my trees love it. If you haven't already, why not continue to switch out all of your light bulbs in the house to LEDs? There are so many different shapes, sizes, and styles of LEDs. You can get rid of all your compact fluorescence. That's, a, that's sort of a no-brainer. The LEDs are much more efficient and give you a much brighter light than your typical compact fluorescence, and they're much better for the environment. And if you have any remaining incandescent bulbs, why not go ahead and change those out as well? You'll get longer lasting bulbs that give you more light. There are so many different styles now, and these bulbs last literally forever they, because they use so little energy. Another suggestion, live energy-wise. Make your home more energy efficient. You can put in one of these automatic air conditioner controls. You could replace your windows or at least the weather ceiling around your windows to give yourself more efficiency from whether you're heating or air conditioning. Another suggestion, uh, eating sustainable food. Did you know that large-scale food production accounts for almost 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions? So the way to attack this problem is to buy locally sourced if you can, choosing food from farmers that are doing the right things. A lot of them will tell you these days that what, they're, what they're doing. Eating more whole grains, fruits, and vegetables because those are more natural. Take less processing to actually get to your table. And of course, if you're composting, you can grow your own fruits and vegetables, which is a terrific way to do it. And of course, you can always do some planting and gardening yourself. Plant a tree, plant a garden. Do some things to actually help the environment by reducing carbon dioxide emissions because trees naturally recycle it, of course. And I hope these things kind of give you a sense of some things that you can do. It's sort of that think globally but act locally sort of notion, right? Do some things in your own life and encourage your friends and your family to do the same. And hopefully over time, we can all come together through collective action and make this a better world and really celebrate Earth Day. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, 
one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gilles. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.